thank both Brandon, Dove, and Christina Lenaker for contributing to the intro and outro for this episode. It's good to have you two working together on this, so thank you again. This week our topic is the brain and what happens to the brain when it learns. We have two guests for this episode, Tanya, who was the guest last week, so it's good to have you again, and Xinyue, who is an international student at Adelphi. Uh, Xinyue, can you tell us a little bit about yourself? Uh, hi, everyone. I'm Xinyue. I come from LG in Adelphi, and uh, my undergraduate major is electrical engineering, but I'm very interested in some of the psychology knowledge of liberal arts. I have worked in China's power sector for more than one year since I graduated from university, but uh, that is not my ideal career. Then I come to United States to pursue my education. Uh, actually, I don't have very formal teaching experience before, but I plan to be a math or physics teacher in the future, and I had the experience of educating children. Okay, thank you. All right, so this week we're talking about the brain, about what we know, how brain affects learning. So, Xinyu, I'll start with you because last semester in the capstone course, you showed interest in learning more about the brain. So I was wondering, why were you interested in the brain, and did you have any prior knowledge I'm very interested in brain science. I usually like to read articles about brain science because at different stages of my education, I realized that the learning ability gap between people is so great. I'm very curious, uh, is this related to our brain or just because we have gaps in our learning abilities? I often hope that I can become a smarter person, so I'd like to study the brain. Understanding brain science allows me to look at myself from another perspective, which helps me to better understand myself and understand my potential and the limitations. And my prior knowledge of brain is that the brain is a very important organ, so we also need to cherish it while using it. I often read articles about how we can make our brains work better. For example, we need good rest, good nutrition, good emotions, so that our brains can work more efficiently. What about you, Tanya? Have you studied brain research before? Not officially. Um, I have epilepsy, and there's a history of other neurological disorders in my family, so I've long been intrigued about the brain and when there's an opportunity to learn about it. I like to keep abreast of new findings, but I haven't been keeping up so much recently, unfortunately. I don't think this was last semester's students' favorite reading, because it's kind of dense and complex. And I was wondering, how did you feel about it when you read it? I actually really enjoyed them. Um, I think the authors used a good number of examples that help not to make the things, the topics that they're talking about, too abstract and technical for me. Like I said, I think the topic of the brain is just really interesting in general, and that includes getting down to the neurons and networks and the science of it. This question of how and why we do what we do is fascinating to me, and that extends to learning. And I clearly have a particularly vested interest in it, if you will, so that's likely a big part of the reason I like them so much. For me, I think I found this article was challenging for me to understand, but I also learned a lot of brain science knowledge that I didn't know before. For example, I first know that there are three primary classes of networks for learning, uh, which are recognition network, strategic network, and uh, affective network. And I first understand what the three networks can do for us. And I think uh, understanding this brain model is very helpful for me to understand the learning process of our, our brains. 
in addition, I first know uh, adolescence illusion that sometimes our expectations can distort our perception of things. And um, I also first uh, aware of that humans fear is so important. And there is an area called the amygdala in our brain is specialized for fear. And uh, the fear in the affective networks can protect us, just as uh, the author mentioned in the reading. So my question is,、uh, what knowledge about brain science is something you didn't know before? I thought of the brain as a large network, like one individual one, rather than thousands of them. And to that point, I had no idea that affective recognition and strategy ones existed, let alone that they were、um, that they were significant for learning. Though I obviously knew that the art of communication, the act of communication, is different for hearing and deaf people. I wondered what that actually meant neurologically. I never looked it up, so it being addressed in Bransford Brown and Cocking's chapter "Mind and Brain"、um, helped put those pieces together, and that's actually my aha moment for this week. People who are deaf they take in information visually, the ones that know sign language, whatever, whether it's American or otherwise, and that lights up different parts of the brain than somebody who's an auditory, like who speaks verbally.、Mm -hmm. So it's just so interesting that the way it's being processed is different. I kind of just thought there was like this. One section for communication and didn't really give it much more thought beyond. There's the visual aspect, even though I know that's a thing, and then there's the auditory part. It's just interesting that it's affecting that it's lighting up those little areas separately. I think for me, the thing that I always find fascinating is something you touched on earlier, where the different networks that coexist in the brain. Thinking about those networks and also the different parts of the brain, not as in an abstract way. Because a lot of the theories and models are abstract in that they are not tied to physical things, but the brain is a physical thing, and that you can point to and that you can look at, which I find kind of fascinating. So yeah, that was kind of my takeaway.、Uh, actually, I have learned the structure of the brain in my high school biology class. I know、uh, neurons, nerve cells, and the synapses since high school, but for the first time from this reading. Uh, I learned that synaptic connections are added to the brain in two basic ways, and for the first time, I know that the neuroscientists explain synapses are formation by analog to the art of sculpture. I think this metaphor is very vivid and very helpful for me to understand the process of、uh, synapse formation. Kind of reminds me too that I most likely did learn this in high school as well. I don't really remember it very well, but yeah, I'm glad you brought that up. Remember the hemispheres, you know that those little bits and pieces, but beyond that, very minimal. I thought this was an interesting question about social interaction. In Bransford and Brown reading, it mentioned an experiment called "Making Rats Matter." Do you think early social interaction is important for children's brain development? I absolutely think so,、um, and their reading, their article or chapter really supports that idea. And referencing that research from nineteen seventy eight. Um, although I'm sure that more research on this topic has been done in the last forty plus years, that can help support or disprove our thinking. I've often thought that part of the reason we go to school is to learn how to socialize, not realizing that there were positive implications for our brains in a technical sense as well.、Um, in doing the reading, I found myself wondering how this affects students who are homeschooled,、um, particularly those who may not be given as many opportunities to engage with their peers. Do either of you have any thoughts on that? Well, I'm assuming that 
people who are homeschooled still do get social interaction with other people. So so it might not be in a school setting, but I'm assuming that for the most part, they still have interaction. So I think maybe that would be comparable. I don't know if it's better or worse than uh, than a school environment. I think uh, social interaction is very essential for brain development in the children's stage, which helps them to form uh, synapses. And uh, I think this experiment, uh, the Making Rest Matter, can fully illustrate the importance of social interaction and the importance of environment for brain development. I know that many community libraries in the United States uh, regularly hold activities to let local children participate in activities, and the children need to go into kindergarten to play with other children before elementary school. I think in the process, they will learn a lot by getting along with other children. So social interaction at this stage is very important for them. And uh, I think children can learn in various social interactions, and they can also promote their social interaction ability in learning. We know that social interaction is important, but I've always wondered what kind of social interaction, or what counts as social interaction, and what are the qualitative differences between a face-to-face interaction versus a virtual interaction from a brain point of view. And this is really hard to study because to do it empirically, to do it as an experiment, you would need to have enough people who are not interacting in person. And there are case studies where children who are who have somehow been deprived by their guardians of social interaction and they're shown to not be able to develop cognitively or develop fully cognitively anyway. And they have real issues developing language and so on. So we know that from a few case studies. But as you can imagine, this is very hard, very unethical <laughs> to really study. So so it kind of remains an open question about the kind of social interaction that is required for the brain to develop. Mm. Okay, let's get to a few more of your questions. So in Bransford and Brown reading, page 122, it mentioned the native Japanese speaker um, typically do not discriminate the R from the L. Some that are evident to English speakers and this ability is lost in early childhood because it is not uh, in the speech that they hear. And as a language learner, what is the inspiration for us to learn a language? What I took away from, and not just this particular section of the reading, but just in general, is that your the brain is a very, I guess you would say efficient, self-regulating mm-hmm. organ. It'll take from the, your environment what are the things that you need to do, what are the sounds that are important, for example, and then anything else that is not needed or is not relevant like in your day-to-day life or something, it'll eliminate. So it kind of, it's efficient in that sense. So I, that's why children better kind of learning languages. For example, if, a, if you learn a new language at an early age, you are more likely to grow up without an accent versus uh, if you have an older brother or a sibling who learns a language, they might be fluent in it, but they'll still retain an accent. Like I said, your brain is self-regulating, so it'll remove things that are not relevant, and then it'll allow you to focus on things. It, that's kind of why, just to connect it even back to the first week about the perception, where sometimes you can look at something and miss something really obvious, even though it's staring right in front of you, because you're not focused on that. Like your brain would be selective in that sense. So. There are a lot of benefits to to learn a second language, not even just second language, any number of languages. It's always great. Every new thing you learn is going to give your brain some something to do, you know? 
the part about the efficiency of the brain, Barbara Oakley and her podcast with Shane Parrish, mm -hmm. um, she talked about languages specifically and how even though you haven't used it for a while, it does get stored somewhere. So, you know, she called it chunking, you know, where you grab from your long-term memory once you're around it again, so it can quote-unquote work again. I've seen this happen plenty of times, you know, once you're exposed to a language again, even if you haven't been exposed to it in 15 years, it's like, oh yeah, no, this makes sense, this is ringing true, so, or ringing familiar. Yeah, definitely. Like, if you have learned it, especially if you've learned it for a significant amount of it doesn't go away completely. And I, and I guess in, in the case of the Japanese learners, it's because they're not exposed to that. Uh, mm -hmm. And so it's not a distinction. I mean, I'm sure there's the, there are sounds that other languages, you know, like if you grew up learning English or grew up learning Chinese, that there will be other sounds that you can't hear or you can't pronounce or whatever, just because we, we don't have those sounds. So just to kind of tie it back to misconceptions, there are a lot of misconceptions of the brain. I think the Bransford reading started with some of them. Yeah. What did you think about them? Have you heard of them? Have you, did you used to believe them? <laughs> so the part about the 20% of their brains, I think I've heard it more about 10%. Yeah. I, I mean, granted, this article is from almost 20 years ago, right? So people have probably changed that over the past, uh, past 20 years. And the fact about, you know, or not the fact, this idea that people can be taught to, to the left hemisphere and the right hemisphere, like, both of those things I've always kind of thought were ridiculous. Don't know why, but I've just kind of assumed that it's kind of a myth. The second one about the hemispheres, when I read it, I was just flabbergasted. I, was, I literally wrote, what? On the paper? Because I just didn't understand how somebody could come up with that. The cast reading, I think they touched on something where people have this misconception that because somebody's brain doesn't function in a normal way, you know, I use normal in quotations, mm -hmm. it doesn't mean that they're broken. And I think there's been a many, many, many years of people thinking that because it's different, it's broken. But they said it's not a disability, but a variability. Mm -hmm. And I think that really struck me. Yeah, I think, I believe, I don't know if it was in the reading, but I believe people can, can lose a significant amount of their brain, like through an accident or something, and mm -hmm. the other part of your brain will adapt. And that's not a myth. I believe that's true. No, I think that's true. I think they talked about people who um, have suffered a stroke or who have part of their brain removed in mind and brain. So they were saying how it's not permanent, it's just changed the way it's, right. your mind processes it. I've actually seen this happen. I used to work in physical therapy for a brief period of time and worked with stroke patients. And like you see this progression of somebody who's just not able to do what they were able to. And then like this persistent practice with them helped them be able to what they call um, in the reading functionally reorganized. Mm -hmm. And that was just so satisfying and really cool to see firsthand. And uh, for me, I know that human beings have many misconceptions about brain. And for example, the life and right brain theory I studied last semester. And uh, just as Tanya mentioned, the utilization rate of human brains, just uh, 10% is also a misconception. And uh, I think the reason that people always misunderstand about the brain is that the human brain is the most complex, most advanced, and the most a miraculous organ in the world. Until the 21st century, we still can't really understand our brain because uh, real brain science knowledge are difficult for people to understand. Just like this week's reading, it takes us a lot of effort to understand, but the pseudoscientific knowledge about the brain can be summed up in one or two simple sentences, and this pseudoscientific knowledge just summarizing very complex knowledge into one sentence 
such as people brain utilization rate is only 10%. Although these conclusions are wrong, but for the public, these pseudosciences are much better understood than real brain science. Therefore, people only remember this misunderstood uh, pseudoscientific knowledge, and the much more complex knowledge about the real brain science has been forgotten by the public, and I think this is why humans have so many misconceptions about the brain. Like we were talking about last week, if you come in with this idea that oh yeah, you know, I've been told my whole life that we only use 10% of our brain and you kind of keep finding information that confirms that, you know, the confirmation bias that's just making things worse, is perpetuating that. And it's inevitable, I think, unfortunately. So then when people see other information about it, maybe it's just too technical for them. I think a lot of times these are for movies. I've heard, I've heard it mm. mentioned at least a few times in different movies. Some scholars have mentioned in a research report that uh, humans still don't know what 90% of the brain does, but uh, this is misinterpreted as humans only use 10% of the oh, brain. Oh, that's a possibility, yeah. Oh, that's good, yeah. What are the questions you have about the reading? Based on your personal learning experiences, what learning activities do you think contributed to your brain and psychological development? This is a great question. Um, I think having the opportunity to learn in different ways and in different different settings from pre-K through 12 contributed for me. Uh, I went to school in Germany, the U.S., and in Guatemala. So pre-K and kindergarten were in Germany, and from what I can recall, it was just learning through playing. We spent time and learned indoors and out, and I just might be misremembering this, but I don't actually remember there being any physical desks of any sort. My U.S. education consisted of the public New York City system, which was very structured, and the few months I spent in Guatemala, I think may have been in a Montessori or Montessori-esque school. Um, so this like mix of styles and experiences and like getting to learn by physically playing was very helpful for me. And of course, having that structure while still being able to explore and experiment on my own complemented that as well. What about you? Did you like, what were your experiences? Combine my personal learning experience, I feel that learning piano is very beneficial to my brain development. Uh, I started to learn piano in my second grade of my elementary school, and before that, my performance at school was uh, bad. But after learning piano for one year, I have made uh, great progress in my school performance since uh, the third grade, and I feel that my abstract generalization ability and the reading comprehension ability has improved a lot, and uh, playing piano also gave me a psychological satisfaction and a sense of accomplishment. So I think uh, learning uh, some instrument may can promote our brain development, and uh, and the brain development uh, can also promote my learning progress in school. And I feel that uh, some extracurricular learning in childhood, uh, such as uh, playing, learn playing piano, is also important because it's important for brain development. And uh, I also think uh, extracurricular learning can promote children's brain development and thus enhance the academic performance. Uh, of children in school learning. That's interesting. How old were you when you said you started learning uh, piano? In my second grade in my elementary school. Okay. And you noticed a change? Yeah, I changed a lot. Uh, before I learned piano, uh, my performance at school is uh, very bad. I don't dare to speak in class and uh, I'm afraid of huh. teacher <laughs> and uh, uh, I can't finish homework and my mother tutor me all the time. But after I learned piano, I think I, I can understand what teacher has said in class. And uh, I gradually 
be more confident than be than before. I wonder if this is an example of transferring, like you're trained in one thing and then transferring it to something else.、Mm. So like maybe the discipline yeah, or like、yeah. the、um, just the way of thinking that music, like learning how to play an instrument, has you thinking, <laughs> help you transfer that to an academic setting. I was wondering whether the process of learning music helped you rewire your brain or something along those lines, or whether you were kind of studying and then playing music, studying, playing music, and your brain had the. You know, was able to absorb information better because of that. I don't know. I was just wondering. That's very interesting. I、yeah. know. <laughs> I had to play music、um, or do art in school, so I chose music. And I mean, I guess I don't recognize there being any kind of correlation like that. I think that's really interesting. But I'm sure there's a reason that they make us do music or art in school. Yeah, I mean, I know that a while back, but there was a period where people thought that if you play classical music to your kids, that they will benefit. Sometimes even before your the baby is born, and as far as I know, that's been debunked. But I think listening would certainly be different from actually practicing and、yeah. playing. I learned the piano as well. I wish I can say I had such a positive experience. <laughs> My、uh, piano learning was a little bit more traumatic, but I don't want to turn this into a therapy session. So,、um, <laughs> so instead, let's talk about something else. Let's talk about perception. You had a question about that, right? Have you ever realized that your expectations has distorted your perception of things? The example, the Adels Adelson's checker shadow illusion that they provide in the reading, was obviously one of them, and it sounds silly, but I was borderline angry <laughs> when I saw this because I could not figure it out, and I went on the website to see it in action, like you could remove parts of it to see it work. It just frustrated me more. Like I felt like my brain was betraying me. I was just not happy about it. Did you? How did you feel when you saw that? Do you have any like examples of these expectations distorting your perception of things? I know that、um, besides the Adelson's illusions mentioned in the reading, I have seen a group of comics about、uh, illusions before. I know that humans have a lot of illusions, such as、uh, Ebbinghaus illusion,、uh, which is the optical illusion of relative size perception, and the Ponzo illusion, which is the、uh, Suggest that a human man judges an objective size based on its background, and、uh, I think um、uh, these are all good examples to illustrate our expectations can wrap what we see. I don't know if the reading mentioned it. I forgot now because it mentioned a few places. But like the brain, the gorilla experiment is another one where something is in front of you, but you just don't see it because you weren't looking for it. I looked it up, and I was just. I, Did you see you the know, gorilla I knew, video? I knew what. It, Yeah, but like I knew to look for it, so、sure. it you know I I saw it, but and I thought like how could somebody possibly miss this? It's just like a gorilla in this completely different movement walking across the screen. How can somebody miss it? But, yeah, yeah, that's that's so interesting. When I see that picture and the image, I think of terminology that we in cognitive psychology that describes this phenomenon called confirmation bias. Confirmation bias means that when people have made a decision or have a rough decision, when providing them an opportunity to collect relevant information, people will turn to collect information that supports their own decisions rather than information that conflicts with their existing decisions. So, by the same token, I think、uh, some preconceived impressions often affect our later judgments, just as、uh, when we see that image. For example, when we、uh, hate something or hate some person, no matter what that person does or what the truth of the matter is, we will become picky. And even、uh, if that person is very friendly, always distorted the truth. We sometimes doubt 
uh, that person's motives and uh, whatever we believe, then we tend to believe in the clues that confirm our ideas. And uh, this will make us more confident in our judgments. It was a very dark yeah, example. That's a great point. <laughs> yeah, it is, but it's true. <laughs> <laughs> it is yeah. true, I guess. Yeah. Uh, it just kind of turned really dark all of a sudden. <laughs> um, <laughs> another thing I take away from the reading is how Sometimes it feels like we don't have a lot of control. Like we don't control what we see, what we think. Mm-hmm. Like who are we? Like you get kind yeah. of, you know, kind of like wondering about like free will and all that stuff. Like like how much control do we really have in in our day to day life? No, we're just going to take an existentialist route. Absolutely. Do you think it's important for educators to know about how the brain works? Being able to recognize the differences in styles and to design your lessons in ways that will help your students. Like all your students learn well,、um, that's why it's important. I like the the reference they made to Albert Einstein and how he could have benefited from his teachers being aware of quote unquote his differences across his recognition networks, because they would have been able to shape instruction that would support this area of weakness and capitalize on his spatial genius. On page seventy one,、um, I think that hits the nail on the head. The authors actively make a point of reminding us several times that these recognition networks don't. Works separate, like in a silo, away from the other network. So it helps sum it up pretty well. I can see how someone might think that this is the same thing as catering to a learning style, though. But I would argue that it's more about being aware of the differences and working with them rather than fo- focusing on one specific thing without regard for anything else. Because you know you've been told that you can only learn by seeing, and we'll just hyper focus on that. I also agree with that. It's important for educators to understand.、Um, I think if educators can understand how the brain works when the learners are learning, then they will better know how to effectively improve the learners' learning ability and the memory ability. Then their teaching effect will be better. Because、uh, the rapid development of human society, the great changes, and the accumulation of massive knowledge make everyone must continue to learn, to make decisions, to think, to innovate, and create. Which require us to improve the efficiency of learning, but the physical structure of our brain restrict our progress of learning. So I believe that educators can improve their teaching and the learners can improve their learning method after they understand how the brain works when we are learning. Then it allows students to learn more efficiently, and educators can improve the efficiency of teaching. Gener- generally speaking, I think education is about enhancing learning. Uh, and the neuroscience of brain is about understanding the mental process involved in learning. This common ground suggests a future in which educational practice can be transformed by brain science, just as medical practice was transformed by science about a century ago. What were some thoughts that either of you have about when you read about the different,、uh, the three networks that was mentioned in the、uh, the cast reading? I notice the importance of fear in our effective network. I mean, I remember the, the where they said talked about anxiety, and I think even Brandon he said something about anxiety.、Um, I remember what I said to him. I don't remember what he said. I hope maybe I'll cut this out. <laughs>、um, <laughs> uh, something about how anxiety can impact your learning, which is the affective network. Which I think that's what the fear part. Is kind of referring to and how that could impact learning. Jonathan and Jennifer, also from last semester's podcast,、mm-hmm. talked about this. Fact about being cognizant of the fact that students come in, you don't know what they're coming in with.、Mm-hmm. Um, be it what's going on at home, or be it their 
insecurities, you know. So that part of it, that being triggered, is very like spot on, I think, with the fear, the amygdala that you were mentioning. Well, it's on page 60. It's, there's a comic with a snake, the fight or flight. And just as the reading mentioned in page uh, 60, that we all had moments of being afraid when we wish we were more courageous, but fear is vitally important to our survival and even to our success. Fear can let uh, us learn to protect us. And uh, Brain's amygdala is specialized for uh, fear. And uh, Taya have a question about that uh, uh, when nature versus nurture so the formation of my fears includes both factors, uh, the nature factor and the uh, nature factor. My brain contains a part of amygdala, which stands for nature, but it also includes a nurture factor that I learned to know what to fear. So I think uh, both nature and nurture are important for uh, my fear formation since my childhood. That's a good way of connecting the nature-nurture thing, because when you talk about nature, you're talking about the brain itself, the way it's evolved and the fact that by nature there are things that we've evolved to be afraid of and the nurture part would be the environment like the extent to which you're you're in an environment where there are threats is that kind of what you mean uh yes yes yeah tanya what do you think about the nature nurture so the reason i brought that up is because from the readings i got this impression that they were saying this debate between nature and nurture and its effect on the brain doesn't really exist based on the findings, mm-hmm. because the brain can change so much, you know. I don't know, maybe maybe I misinterpreted it in thinking that they were so, like, set on the idea that, nope, it's nurture only, it's what you're experiencing that's shaping you. I'm not sure I agree with that entirely, so maybe when it comes to learning, yes, I can understand that, but if you're looking at it from the brain as a whole, I think it's definitely a mix of both. You're talking about the cast reading, right? It was actually in the mind and brain, I oh, found mind and it. Brain. Okay. it was, yeah, it was on the second page where they say, they, they are talking about instruction and learning. They say, greater understanding of the nature of this interactive process renders moot such questions as how much depends on genes and how much on environment. So that I interpreted that as nature versus nurture and its effect on the brain. And they go on to specifically talk about, you know, the neurons and whatnot. I feel like my interpretation of this... And I could be wrong, but just looking at it again now, I feel like my, my interpretation of it is they're not saying it's all nurture. Is that kind of what your disagreement is? Yeah, I thought they were saying it's all nurture. Like, look how much the brain can change. You know, it's not set. I kind of felt like they were saying that this dichotomy is mood, not that it's all nurture. I wonder how I'd feel about it now if I looked at this through those lenses. In page uh, 126, Bransford and Brown reading mentioned that uh, one of the simplest rules is that practice increases learning. So what do you think practice means for learning? So does practice necessarily mean repetition? I was wondering about that. For example, practice English, um, practice, um, practice skills. For example, when I play video games, I practice uh, my skills when playing it. Yeah, no, and... Same here, but is that is that because we're repeating things? Like I, I can imagine practice for learning when you think of something like music, but it gets trickier when we when you're doing something like what we're doing, where you read and watch certain things and then reflect and talk about them. What are we practicing there? Are we practicing the retrieval of the information, or are we repeating what we've learned? Like um, I was having a hard time connecting this, even when I was doing the reading, not specifically for the question. Barbara Oakley mentioned this in the podcast where she 
even brought up the example of Chinese students practicing, I believe, math. And I think the idea of drill and practice exercises used to be something that was done in schools and then kind of considered wholly repetitive and not really helpful. But our new understanding of the brain seems to have also changed that idea. Our understanding of the brain and how it's wired shows that practice and repetition has actually positive effects in the, the way the brains are wired and how it improves learning. I'm not arguing, I'm not disputing that there isn't, like that repetition is unnecessary, it def- absolutely is. Mm-hmm. I was wondering whether practice is necessarily repetition, though. Does, does that okay. make sense? Uh, the practice means here is um, that, for example, I'm a language learner uh, and uh, I practice my English every day uh, because I need to reading, writing, listening, and speaking uh, in United States all the time. And I think uh, practice means here it means uh, training, train my language skills. Practice and training for learning, I mean, it's an absolute necessity. You can't learn something without practicing it. But I guess I'm wondering, does this training, does it always necessarily require repetition? Like, and I, Barbara Oakley, she says how it needs to be deliberate. So my, my thinking was, okay, this repeating things for the sake of repeating things doesn't do anything, like unless you're doing something deliberately about it. Mm. Um, just like saying, okay, apple, 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 like <laughs> what does that do? Um, but if you're like repeating and thinking about it, then there's more to it. Um, yeah, I agree with you. I think that deliberation is important. I've been trying to learn or relearn French uh, using Duolingo. And uh, I don't know if you've tried it before, but it is very repetitive. Um, yeah, but, I use it for German. Yeah, and and uh, yeah. but I've been able to be a, a lot more metacognitive about it and and deliberate about things, and realize that a lot of the things that in when I was learning in in middle school and high school, where we were quote unquote practicing but re- and repeating things, the things were not connecting in my head that I am able to connect now. So I think that makes a huge difference. Like, if you don't know why you're doing something, you're, you're probably not going to benefit from it, whatever your brain is doing. That's kind of my take on it. I agree. Or at least it doesn't maximize it. Maybe your brain still does something, but I think there's still part of it that still requires your awareness or something. Uh, can I talk about yes, Pomodoro please. technique? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, have, have you ever tried the Pomodoro technique? Um, do you think that regular rest in learning is important to us? I don't think the Pomodoro technique was mentioned in the readings, but it was in the Parish and Oakley podcast. And basically, it's where you have a period of focused work, but then you also take structured breaks in between. That's kind of the gist of it. I don't know if it varies the length of time and so on, but the idea is that you have a you take deliberate breaks in between very focused work. So that's kind of what the Pomodoro technique is. I haven't tried it. I've heard of things like it, but I've never heard of a name for it. As someone who procrastinates a lot, and I do that by cleaning, like Barbara Oakley mentions it, um, it seems like a good idea to like focus it, right? Um, having that reward at the end that's actually good for you and for your learning is a great incentive. I'm not sure it would work for me every time I'm procrastinating, though, uh, because I do it because I can't focus at times, which is probably what's fueling my procrastination. And those 25 minutes would not be productive at all. It would just be like 
me thinking about, okay, so it's 24 minutes, it's 23 minutes, like what's going to happen at the end? And I also wouldn't necessarily want to cut myself off after 25 minutes, like if I'm in the zone, because I feel like that could kind of be detrimental. I'm focused and I'm on a roll and then let me stop it and then kind of like throw myself off. That would, I think that'd be frustrating. As for rest, I think, you know, I'm so glad she emphasizes it. I often joke and say that I excel at sleeping, but I do genuinely think it's important. I've heard of needing rest and sleep in particular to actually help store the information you've learned before, and I'm really glad that it's actually supported, not something I've wanted to hear. There's also an interesting relationship between sleep and seizures that always catches my attention, and reading this helps back that up, I guess. Like, I think such a regimented resting wouldn't work, but I do get up and maybe walk around a bit or, or something. I don't consciously or I don't specifically schedule that in, but I do think I end up taking breaks in between. What about you, Shinyu? Have you used either before that? Have you ever done something like that? Yeah, I have heard about Pomodoro Technique uh, in my university, and uh, I also download the mobile phone app, uh, and I use it to manage my learning focus time. And uh, during the 25 minutes of learning, I can't unlock my app when uh, using it. Otherwise, it will show that my learning has uh, <laughs> failed. I think it will help my train my concentration. Um, and uh, I actually, I think my focus time can be longer than 25 minutes. And I think sufficient relaxation and rest are also very important for our brain and learning. I remember that... Uh, there's a saying called um, people who are able to rest are able to learn. So if we have been learning and not relaxing all the time, it seems that we have spent more time on learning, but the learning effect may be counterproductive. And uh, just as uh, really mentioned, let our brain go well we are doing and letting ourselves be bored for some periods of the day is helpful because it, uh, if we focus every single second, it will be not healthy for our creative creative thinking and our brain needs this sort of downtime i i actually uh, i really agree with this point if i got tired i think uh, my learning efficiency will be low and uh, i don't think uh, focus focusing too much time uh, can uh, improve my learning effect yeah, i think last semester some one of the students mentioned um, just kind of building in like a small break in the in, in the middle of a classroom as she teaches I mean, if you think of just for for teachers, um, and not even just for teachers, but like think about like a full day of learning, or even in university, like if you take a full day of courses, that's not going to be easy for you to learn. That's not going to be helpful when you pack everything in there. Yeah, I was curious, since we talked so much about learning styles last week, like where you think the authors of variability of learners, how they would feel about learning styles? I think... The author of this article should be against the learning style theory. Although uh, the author points out that the brain structure of each of us is so different, he does not say that we should learn in different ways. On the contrary, uh, the author mentioned the well-known half theory uh, on page 53, that people act or think in a way that makes pathways among those neurons are formed, and those connections get stronger and more efficient as the thoughts or actions are repeated. And uh, when people stop um, pra- practicing certain sorts of actions, the brain eventually prones uh, the connecting cells that form the pathways. I think, um, uh, in my understanding, the author mentioned that means that uh, the author encouraged learners to use different styles and the practices 
to learn rather than being limited to limited to one style. In addition, the author also mentioned in page fifty-eight that our brains are purposeful, goal-driven networks that have evolved to bias our perceptions and actions in ways that make them very much more subjective than objective. Uh, I think. Uh, that since the author knows that our brain is selective and subjective, then the author should be aware that our brains will also have a preference learning style when we learn. Although objectively speaking, this may not be necessarily our most effective learning method. So, in my understanding, I think the author should be aware of the potential harm of learning style theory and uh, uh, oppose uh, this theory. I tried to see if learning styles came up in their index. To see if it's referenced anywhere, and it's not. <laughs> so maybe that's a sign. And I think going off of what Xinyue said or、uh, asked about the language learning, when I talk about learning style theory, I'm talking about the idea that it's like a visual learner can only take in information visually, kind of thing. Like that theory, I would think that if given that the brain is self-regulating, like if you only expose yourself to visual things and then ignore auditory things, like that, I would think that other parts of your brain that you are ignoring. Will be somewhat detrimental to it, and in fact, it's actually you do need that rich environment. Like far from depriving yourself from other things, you should actually keep exposing your brain to, you know, new information, different kinds, different presentation or、uh, representations of information. Than it is to just say I'm only going to interpret things in one way. No, I agree, and I think the readings from last week as well, and Barbara Oakley in her podcast, she she's adamantly against the learning style,、yes. you know,、yeah. and how dangerous it is, and. It's like okay, of course this makes sense to us now. Unfortunately, I have to give this disclaimer because when we get to the Understanding by Design reading by Wiggins and Mitig, which is a great book and they're wonderful, every now and then they would just mention learning styles in passing. They never expand on it. They just kind of drop it in there, and that's just really annoying for me. <laughs> so when you get to that reading, if you see it, that would be why. <laughs> well, they might be looking at it from the perspective of not. Not、uh, like maybe from the perspective of it being a misnomer, you know, not actually this one learning style that this is what、yeah. you're being focused on. But like maybe they think, oh yeah, you know, you could have three different types of learning styles, which is how I think most of us interpreted it. Yeah, maybe I wonder if that's there.、Yeah. I mean, they mentioned in passing they don't even they just kind of say your you know lessons or instructional design should be flexible, which is、uh, you know that's the that's true, and they kind of drop in learning styles in there, which is problematic. So,、uh, but anyway. Was there anything in the podcast that you wanted to talk about? The podcast mentioned、uh, Cormac McCarthy, a Pulitzer Prize-winning author who was originally trained as an engineer stu- engineering student, which is part of the reason his writing is so profoundly beautiful. It's because he's also thinking about it analytically. Have you had similar experiences? Your ability to be trained in one aspect makes you perform better on the other aspect. I had a really hard time with this. I could not come up with anything, so like I was thinking about the different ways I've been trained, and maybe I just have a hard time reflecting on that for myself. I was kind of curious to see what you you both had to say about it, and like your discussion about learning piano and it translate translating into academic improvement. I think is an example of that. But is there anything else that you thought of while you were reading this or listening to this rather? I had very similar experiences. So、uh, when the Cormac McCarthy example show up, I can recall my learning experiences. I think、uh, my ability to be trained in one aspect makes me perform better than others on the other aspect. Because、uh, in bachelor, I was engineering student. Although I'm 
not going to continue my work in engineering industry in the future. I feel that studying engineering has trained me a lot of、uh, logical thinking skills, and I feel that in my daily life I become more planning and organized than before after my college. I think my、uh, method to solve problems become more organized. I also become more patient, more careful, and、uh, rigorous. So I think、uh, these abilities and the characteristics. Um, that I don't have、um, before my university,、um, but after、uh, my university, I can benefit.、Uh, th- these skills make、uh, can benefit me for a lifetime, and I can do better when I do all kinds of practical work. So I think this example of Cormac McCarthy resonated with me. I've only read one book by Cormac McCarthy, The Road, which is really、mm-hmm. depressing. The book, <laughs> I mean. But I was thinking, like I. Sometimes I think that this says more about the way that our academic disciplines are siloed in these, in these departments, that make it seem like there is a huge difference between engineering and writing. We are put in these silos when we start school, for the most part, unless you went to a very different kind of school. Like for the most part, these subjects are very siloed, and there are some attempts now to weave in art and all that, which I think would be good. My undergrad was in business. Actually, originally it was in architecture, but then I decided that was not a good idea for me because I was horrible at drawing. But、um, then I went to business school, and then I studied like teaching of English, and then got into video games. And Matt Karinga, his college degree was in English as well, literature, and then he, you know, did programming. I think it's always great if you are able to have experienced two very different fields. I'm nodding. I realize you can't see me. Okay. <laughs> Tanya, you had a question about twin studies and the brain, right? It was to the nature versus nurture. Ah, I kind of tied in with that. So I consulted some information about、uh, the structure of the brain for this、uh, for this question. I learned that、um, different human brain cortical shapes are different, and the surface of the human brain is not smooth, but it's covered with a sulcus that、uh, allows the cerebral Cerebral cortex to be much larger in the surface area than a smooth brain, and can accommodate more neurons. But like a human fingerprint, no two person has the same form of the sulcus, and and even for the twins, the form of the sulcus is only similar and different from each other. Since the cerebral cortex is divided into many functional areas, and the different sulcus forms means that the distance between functional areas. Varies from person to person, so the time it takes for a signal to travel between these functional areas is also different. So for a particular person, if the distance between the two functional areas is shorter than the average distance, then for that person, the intelligence associated with the two functional areas may be higher. However, the distance between the other two functional areas may be longer than the average distance. And then the intelligence associated with these functional areas may be poor. So this may partly explain why different people have different talents. And some are talented in mathematics, and some have musical talent, but they may be worse than others in other aspects. So I think、uh, the sulcus form of the twins' brain are different, which leads to their differences. And uh, uh, the difference in brain sulcus structure makes us so different. So they're only identical up to a certain point. You mean the brain, brain-wise? Yeah, like if you're looking at them, sure they might seem. Yeah. You know, I don't know. Just it, to me, it seemed like okay. So if they look so much alike, maybe there's this possibility that their brains are also wired the same way.、Mm. But if you start 
changing as soon as you're born. But it makes sense. It makes sense that they wouldn't be exactly the same. It would be interesting to see if there are studies out there that compare twins who grew up together and live in more or less the same environment versus twins who were separated at birth and compare those. I feel like similar studies have been done, although it might not be from a neuroscience point of view. It might be more psychological, sociological, but uh, it would be interesting to see if they're out there. Well, if you find anything out, and I will do the same. If I find anything, I will share it. I think that wraps up our podcast. Thank you both again for contributing and being part of this episode. I hope you have a great weekend. Thank you. Bye. Okay. Thank you. Bye.